Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, is my brother, Jeff. Jeff, how are you today? I am well. The holidays are upon us, Michael. A cornucopia of holiday cheer do I have for you. Won't you have some? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to avail myself of the cheer. Yeah, it's that time of year. It's my favorite time of year. It's, you know, there's nothing like it. You migrate north, uh, the weather gets cooler, even though it's not super cold here. And, uh, you know, put some Christmas music on. We're a big Christmas family. We get the decorations out. Uh, You know, we're still living in a post-Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas world. That's a great place to be. Uh, Yes, it is. Get those uh, holiday treats going. I hear you've been making some holiday treats. Yeah, I'm trying to just uh, live up to the... uh, the traditions exactly. roll on into the next generation. Yes, <laughs> exactly. They are formidable. But yeah, it is that uh, that chill in the air means it's time to harvest, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, get some uh, grain together, build a uh, you know a granary. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's the first thing I always did in civilization. Build a have granary. a harvest. Yeah, right. Have a harvest ball. Come on down to the harvest ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to get this stuff in the uh, you know off to market before uh, Saturnalia, basically. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, definitely, definitely. So uh, yeah, we're gonna take the opportunity of this time of year to talk about what I think has become one of our favorite Epcot pavilions over the years, uh, if if not. Uh, through a combination, I will say, of attrition and its own merit, both. Uh, the land. Yes, you put it very well. Attrition and its own merit. Uh, back in the day, it would almost fly under the radar, I would say, but we did enjoy it. But yes. I would have never placed it up at the top. Um, whereas now, you could argue, it's kind of the last one standing. Uh I mean, of course, you have Spaceship Earth, which is still there. So one of the last two standing, but uh, a real varied, uh, you know, we talk about cornucopias. It is a living cornucopia of of ideas and uh, thematic entertainment. Yeah, it was always just a great utility player. Like it had a, a range of skills, but was... Not the all-star. It's not like the, you know, the the five-star recruit on your team. Uh, but now, you know, it's been playing a long time and you start to appreciate it. Start to appreciate the role it's played. It's also not like the all-star resorts. But, yeah, and, and we talk about, you know, ecology, which we will. Uh, it has a great little ecology to it where there's a lot of different moving pieces throughout history. Now it's completely different. But, you know, back when it opened... A lot of neat little disparate things all together in one place that work well together. Right. And it had a great vibe. Oh, it, yeah. Just the atmosphere of it, the music loop, the sa- the soundtrack to this pavilion is one of my favorite yes. pavilion soundtracks because you have the outside loop, which is great, that sort of synthy, futuristic. Then you have the inside, which is famously the sort of sun and moon loop with sun and moon songs and uh, you know it's changed over the years but then you had kitchen cabaret which was 
everything from the lobby music to the exit music was so good. Yes. I mean, legendary. I, I used to really dance my pants off at the kitchen cabaret. <laughs> you uh, did. I lobby. forgot about that. But uh, also, the land, one of the two places along with uh, Canada, where you could hear kind of folk music, folk music as we refer to it as. Um, so yeah, get your acoustic guitar out and jam a little bit. Yeah, when I started figuring out like what was actually on those land loops, you know, several years ago now realizing who the songs on that sort of synthy outside loop were by was kind of shocking. I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get it now. Right. I get it. They went the sort of, uh, very seventies folky, uh, lineup. That's right. That's right. Good stuff. And of course the ride, which we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk a lot about different aspects of this pavilion and how it was developed, but another shout out to it. And this is, Again, something we're going to talk about, but the fact that it's a real research facility, it is, it does what Epcot was meant to do. Yeah. I mean, and, and I always talk about how I, you know, my vote would have been for the Epcot's, you know, centers where they had the kind of research facilities and you would go to Epcot center to hear about the research. And this was, you know, the satellites, I guess they were called, um, this was the one that they built. Um, yeah, that was the real thing, and they built it at at Epcot Center. So I know why I'm so fond of it because I think it, you know you can see a lot of uh, research and discovery right there in front of your eyes for millions and millions of people to see, and it probably changed a lot of minds through the years. Absolutely, absolutely, definitely exposed us to things we had never seen before. And I would mm-hmm. say that's probably the same for a lot of people. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know. We, we hear about all kinds of people who are in, I don't know, computers and all that world who were influenced by Epcot when they were kids. You got to feel like there are people who went in agriculture that were. Yeah. Oh, you, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So where are we going to start off on this journey? We're going to look back. You're going to take us on a trip through the road to get to what we know as the land, some early development stories of that. Yeah, it's a long and winding road. A lot of cul-de-sacs along the way, but it's an interesting development process. That's right. And then we're going to take a look at the old sponsor that ended up with the land, which was originally Kraft. It later became Nestle. Um, But Kraft was the first... Craft signed on when it was just a twinkle in Cardwalker's eye. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a little craft, and we're going to talk a little bit about the partner in the pavilion, Dr. Carl Hodges uh, of the University of Arizona, and a few of his uh, buddies in research, the environmental research lab uh, out there, and their contributions. Yeah, a a fundamental element of the planning and promotion of the pavilion. That's right. And speaking of fundamental, we're going to end with a little tidbit about our friend uh, in spirit, Mr. Bob Moline. You can't talk about the land without talking a little Bob. Got to mention him. He's, 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 his spirit flows through it. It's true. It's true. So some good music ahead. 
some good living, uh, you know, living with, living with the land. Hmm. Listening to it, perhaps. But uh, you, shall we uh, get going on yeah, this journey? Yeah, I'm ready to uh, grab my lazy river inner tube and coast down the waterways of the land. The sprawling five-acre land pavilion is Epcot's largest, and alongside Spaceship Earth, it's the one which today mostly stays true to the park's original mission. But that doesn't mean the pavilion hasn't seen its share of changes over the years. It also has a fascinating development history, much like the other original pavilions, and its road from original inspiration to opening day was a long one. Jeff, love the land pavilion. Oh, I mean, always... You know, if if you get there early in the morning, we always used to walk by Spaceship Earth because it was too crowded and go straight to the land first thing. So it's always, that is always an association I have with it as like the first part you really see of Epcot every every morning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Got to go get that first Coke of the morning. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a sugar but- cookie. But yeah, the the range of the pavilion, which we'll talk about some, and the scope of it, and obviously the centerpiece of it, all high marks for me. Absolutely. Like the rest of the opening day roster, the land had its roots in the future world theme center concept from 1975. We're back to the theme center. Love it. One of our favorite ideas. Uh, We talked about this plan on previous episodes, most recently in our Spaceship Earth outing, so I won't go too much into it here, but under this scheme, the theme of humanity's interaction with nature would be covered by an attraction called the Epcot Future World of Agriculture. This pavilion was originally assigned for development to a team consisting of the omnipresent Claude Coates, horticulture expert Bill Evans, and landscape architect Herb Ramser. A proposed pavilion layout from the summer of 1975 was drawn by Coates and intriguingly hints at many ideas which would recur over the years in the pavilion's planning. I don't know her, but I mean, put Claude and Bill Evans together and I'm, shoot. I know. I mean, you're leading off strong with that team. Claude Coates involved in everything pretty much at this point. Yes. He's the uh, Walt Whisperer, I guess. I don't know. Mean, moody, and magnificent Claude Coates with his uh, vibey attractions. So, yeah. It's true. It's true. He was there at the start. Guests would enter this pavilion by walking past hydroponic pools before entering a carousel theater. Yes. Also omnipresent. Yeah. Also, yeah. The first scene of the show would be a Midwestern farm dating back to 1900 while subsequent scenes would show films about various elements of agriculture, soil, water, seed, fertilizer, different kinds of food production, and even weather control. Mm. 
guests would exit into a display area focusing on foods of the future before entering an enclosed greenhouse where they would exit the pavilion via a speed ramp, also which would carry them up through terraced gardens showing exotic plants growing under climate control. I mean, carousel theater and a speed ramp. Yeah, I mean, you're living in tomorrow, essentially, with those two things. Basically. I mean, that's a match made in heaven, just truly from is. one to the other. Yeah. Imagine going through those greenhouses on a speed ramp. That'd be great. Not as good as a boat, but yeah. I mean, no, not as good as a boat. Everything's better on the boat, but the speed ramp is nice too. Another part of the theme center scheme was the Epcot Institute and its satellite centers, which would be R&D facilities situated throughout and even outside Walt Disney World property. To this end, in late 1975, WED put together a proposal of an agricultural R&D program which would serve as a step towards Epcot. It would feature demonstrations of prototype systems which could, once Epcot was officially established, develop into Epcot agricultural satellites. Now, under this scheme, an R&D satellite center would serve as a core for research, data collection, technology transfer, and demonstration. It would have offices, lab facilities, environmental monitoring, and R&D work in a number of fields, including aquaculture, hydroponics, water hyacinths, of course, pyrolysis, and anaerobic fermentation. Mm. It would also have field R&D facilities using various types of animals, crops, equipment, and technology for evaluation and monitoring. Now, participation in these facilities would be open to universities, organizations, industry, and private and governmental areas. Early plans would incorporate existing Walt Disney World facilities, such as its nurseries and filter tree farm. And these would be expanded on as development progressed and turned into true research facilities. Yeah, I mean, it, it does bear saying that, that Disney was working and, you know, we've talked about this when we talked about Bill Evans and when we talked to Scott Gerard. A lot of prototype systems already, uh, especially in regards to agriculture and looking at developing, you know, the land they had after Walt died. I think agriculture played a part in that. And there was all kinds of wild stuff. I mean, you read about them raising eucalyptus to use for either biofuels or, or you know, a kind of paper, all kinds of uh, crazy stuff. And then obviously the water highest at the pro- program would come along later, but interesting time. And I think this, this was a real kind of no brainer just with all the land they had to, in in an, in an agricultural area that it already was, uh, central Florida, that being, yeah, that's true. You know, just be a prototype leader in that field. Is, is it interesting that Disney yeah, would it, take that on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it seems the natural fit as a first wave of Epcot satellites to use these facilities because they already did have them. Like you said, if people go back and listen to our uh, story about Bill Evans and listen to our interview with Scott Gerard, I mean, they had the filter tree farm. They had these mm-hmm. experimental nurseries. Uh, they had a pyrolysis plant, which burned biomass to create energy they had all this stuff going already so it was a really great way to get into the whole official epcot thing this was uh, 
yeah, Epcot thought starters, I guess you could right, say. Right, right. In January of 1976, Disney pitched Ralston Purina on an Epcot agricultural prototype demonstration program. Under this scheme, the Epcot Institute would establish and administrate all prototype demonstration programs. They would also solicit funding for programs and disseminate the results of these demonstration projects and programs for broadest exposure and application through the Epcot showcase elements and programs. This is all very, like I've worked in academia in the past, and this is all like translational science. This is like getting stuff out of the lab and onto the streets. Yes. And you see that happening <laughs> that, that does manifest itself later. Um, yeah. Interesting. I, I'm hung up on the fact that Institute, you know, that, the, that terminology, uh, which became so popular later was being the original about. Institute. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, I mean, I think that was the whole idea of like, what can an entertainment company do? Well, they can broadcast this to people better than, you know, the Academy can. So right, let's right. work with the Academy and broadcast it. And, and of course, industry and broadcast it will be the broadcasters. Yeah, and get it into the hands of everyday citizens, everyday people who could then use the tank, which goes back to like Walt's original idea for the city of Epcot. That was the same goal. Yeah, to get the tank an, out there. Right, it's an abstraction of this. The it's a different application to the same desire. Yeah, yeah, totally. This institute would license offsite applications of proprietary results. That's proprietary from Epcot Research in order to generate revenue for continued support of Institute programs. Participating companies would be members of the Epcot Institute and contribute capital, operating funds, and participation fees. Participants would also provide technical support in their fields of expertise and retain the results of the demonstration program for exclusive proprietary use, so everybody gets the benefits of the program. In October of 1976, the Epcot Land Advisory Board was formed. This group met periodically to advise Disney management and to assure agricultural integrity within the pavilion. Dr. Daniel Aldrich, the chancellor of UC Irvine, was an important member of this group, which would help guide the development of the pavilion over the following few years. They would also take part in the Epcot forums related to agricultural subjects, as we discussed in our town hall interviews with Peggy Ferris. So go back and listen to those, too. Another key player in the creation of the pavilion was the University of Arizona Environmental Research Laboratory and its director, Dr. Carl Hodges. In December 1976, the ERL proposed a controlled environment agriculture production facility for Walt Disney World. This would be a public demonstration site for advanced agriculture that would also supply a portion of fresh produce needs for Walt Disney World's food operations. The proposed two-acre facility would not be a theme park attraction, but a purely functional greenhouse site. And it was this idea which would form the germ of an idea from which the eventual land pavilion would spring. They were, in 1976, they already had this notion of this growing facility for Disney World food production. It's brilliant. I mean, to think about, yeah, if, if they could have built a facility that would have really defrayed some of their food costs, that would, that would have been interesting. I mean, obviously, they would go on to do some of this 
for sure. Yeah, but. yeah, and it would have been totally behind the scenes. Yeah, although with some availability to to like tours and things. Right, so. right. There were still a few detours remaining on the road to open day. However, in mid 1977, Dan Aldrich recommended to the advisory committee that the concept for the pavilion be expanded beyond the narrow field of agriculture. Marty Sklar agreed, stating that the pavilion should reflect several fundamental considerations for land use, including agriculture, wildlife, and water. It had been pointed out that when it comes to determining land use, there are often competing and or compatible concepts of how to manage it. So a lot of perspectives here, and they felt like they should represent multiple views of this. Yeah. Field. How do you, how do you, <laughs> that's the thing with coming up with such a broad uh, initial subject. Right. It, it becomes very broad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the point of Epcot was supposed to be presenting alternatives and choices and subject areas so that people could make informed choices about key issues in the real world. So they thought that Wedge should present a multiple use concept of the land. This way, visitors would see several alternatives and choices along with their corresponding consequences and impact on society so that they could choose reasoned and responsible paths. Because people always choose reasoned and responsible right. paths. Especially and, in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. All that lead in the air. Mm. To this end, the pavilion should be a pavilion of the land, not just an agriculture pavilion. So our first step towards the land. And boy, a pavilion of the land is certainly what Imagineers came up with in late 1977. Under the stewardship of Tony Baxter and a slew of others, a veritable army of Imagineers, a plan for a ridiculously massive and sprawling land pavilion was concocted. And when I say ridiculously massive, I mean ridiculously massive. Uh, wow. If you've been online a while in the Disney community, you've probably seen art of this pavilion or photographs of its scale model. It would be enclosed in giant glass crystal-shaped buildings on a scale which I can't imagine they would have been able to pull off in real life. Here's a rundown from September 1977 of some of the ideas for what would await visitors to this land pavilion. Your visit would start with It's Your Land, a pre-show to acquaint guests with the many ways of celebrating the land and its harvest. Then guests would enter a carousel theater. What, of course. For a show about the acres, a story about a farmer and his family who are visited by Professor Marvel, who teaches the greedy farmer the importance of sharing and cooperating with others. It's always goes back to the Wizard of Oz. Always a Wizard of Oz with this guy. I yeah. love it. <laughs> um, this this show was supposed to be like this guy was supposed to be like Scrooge, so it's supposed to be like a kind of Christmas carol-y visit mm -hmm. by professor marvel who would teach him uh, the way to be a good farmer and be good with his neighbors the farmer and the cowboy should be friends i guess uh, of course a later development of this we've seen art for this at d23 events that had a character called the land keeper yes uh, kind of halfway between professor marvel and Dreamfinder. So. which you know professor marvel even was Dreamfinder-esque. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's just like a, the spectrum, the road to Dreamfinder. Right. This is just the start, though. We then proceed to the Great Fair of Mankind, 
a transition area between shows where guests would see humorous examples of progress and technology. Then we'd witness the Rainbow Island Fable, a story about the Shmoo people (laughs) and how the Shmoo people almost lost a tropical little paradise by wrecking their land with bad use of technology and uncontrolled population growth. I mean, that just sounds wild. I know. I would love to know what media this would have been presented in. Like, I picture, you know, when we went to the um, Tower Bridge in London, and they had that little show with, like, like little (laughs) fold-up kind of things that would pop up, little animatronic fold-up, like a storybook fold-up pop-up book. Uh, I imagine that with the little schmoo people telling their story. Yeah, I mean... Wow, that that just brings back a lot of memories. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, or the uh, the water engine show, maybe be yes. something like that. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah, all of this, however, was only a prologue to Nature's Wonderland, a ride where guests would board balloons and follow Professor Marvel on a journey through the four seasons. The ride experience would climax in Learning from Nature, a cyclorama film showing examples of what man has learned from nature. And if that wasn't enough, there was still Future Land, the enormous glass-enclosed structures containing nine separate natural biomes. Yeah, I mean, count me, just the nature's wonderland, the idea of that being at Epcot is the one the one thing of these I really wish that we had yeah i mean when you look at the model and you look at the art for it it's all really trippy in that sort of symphony of the seed way mm-hmm. and uh, that really sort of trippy 70s vibe of oversized you know you go through fall and it's all autumn colors and you go through winter and it's just giant trippy snowflakes so this would have been quite a ride oh yeah for sure for sure. I don't know how much it would have cost to execute. Well, yeah. But you would have been able to spend half a day just in this one pavilion. Yeah. I mean, gosh. I mean, how much would it have cost, Michael? I I don't know. Quite a bit. <laughs> and the maintenance on this, that just that glass alone, my gosh. Who knows? Yeah. Uh hot on the heels of this plan in October of 1977. Disney CEO Card Walker reached out to the head of craft, one Bill Beers, asking if his company would be interested in seeing a presentation about participating in Epcot. Beers would go on to become a fundamental figure in the development of Epcot as he was an active and vocal booster of the project and helped ensure that Disney received the corporate backing that it desperately needed to fund the creation of the park. Beers at the time was approaching his mandatory retirement date And it was generally felt that he saw Disney as an opportunity to do one final major thing to influence Kraft's direction for years to come. And boy, he went all in. Yeah, he came on strong. And, you know, this is a time where they weren't getting sponsors. There were only a few. (laughs) And the project hung on the sponsors. It would not have happened if they couldn't have got the sponsors. So... Uh, you know, it took people like him to see, and we, you know, we've talked about or mentioned before horizons. Uh, that's a whole different thing, but you know, uh, people deciding 
to go with this project, usually there was kind of a personal connection with, with yes. the person and and the vision. Absolutely. Um, no I mean, these corporate personalities were big. I mean, it was it's such an old school, like Mad Men style of doing things, like backslapping yeah. with the CEO. And uh, it is the personal relationships they would make and like exchange gifts and, you know, go visit Chicago and go out on the town and go see, you know, I think they saw maybe we're in New York and saw Chicago in the theater, you know, and would have these crazy dinners, corporate dinners and, you know, dinner and a show. It's just a whole different era, I suppose. Right. Well, yeah. But yeah, these guys were fundamental to the to the formation of the park. Well, by two months later, in December of 1977, a new concept for the land pavilion had been created with a story treating the various uses of land in America and emphasizing the productivity of the American food industry. Card Walker approached the head of Borden about the idea as they had already expressed interest in participating in the Life and Health Pavilion. Marty Sklar, for his part, was relieved to ditch the massive land concept as he felt that the plan had gotten out of hand and that it would never have worked or been sold to a sponsor. Marty did not like it. He thought it was way too expensive and no one would ever buy off of it. I mean, it's just kind of wild to think about that even being possible. I wonder if it would have been, but, I mean, he was probably right. (laughs) He was probably right. It is interesting to see, like, the political dynamics of the dreamers and the doers because you had people like the Imagineering team coming up with the most elaborate thing they could think of because they thought it was cool. Then you have the people like Marty who are just dead set on making this thing happen. And like, all right, well, we have to do whatever we have to do to make this happen. So let's make an agriculture pavilion that appeals to an agriculture company because that's what we got to, that's what we have to do. It's a, it's a hard dance making a theme park. It's true, but it takes both sides. You know, it's just finding the balance, I think, is the, is the thing. Yeah. Well, by March of 1978, Bill Beers at Kraft had gotten his presentation about Epcot. And Beers felt that Kraft was more in the business of agriculture as opposed to food processing compared to other potential Epcot participants like Borden and General Mills. So he felt Kraft's interests would be more in line with the land instead of life and health. They had pitched both of these pavilions to a bunch of companies and Kraft thought the land was more their speed. That's interesting. Yeah. You would think life and health would be better. That's funny. Yeah. It was almost like, well, they're like we, we could include food and in health or we could include food in agriculture. You know, it could go either way, just depending on what the company Ecology, right. It was like bigger than agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of expanded and then it contracted again right? because right. of, you know, who they were focusing on. Uh, the reality of it all, signing on to sponsor Pavilion would be a $35 million commitment for a single sponsorship. Although Beers was open to co-sponsoring with a paper company like Georgia Pacific. Now, Georgia Pacific had been one of the potential sponsors considered for Baxter's land concept. And a number of possible woodsy-themed mascots such as owls, beavers, and bald eagles had been developed by Disney artists. So there was a potential there for a company like Georgia Pacific to step in, but it just never happened. Throughout spring and summer, 
Debates continued over whether Kraft should sponsor the land or life and health pavilions. WED continued to develop its new concept for the land, and there was a great deal of back and forth over what the thing should be called. Marty felt that the land wasn't enough, and that the pavilion should have more evocative names. He suggested listen to the land for the entire pavilion. Kraft, for their part, felt that the land was too broad a title for the mostly food-oriented subject matter being covered. The food would have been a great title. The food. Yeah. Food. (laughs) Period. (laughs) In September 1978, Kraft officially signed a letter of intent to sponsor the pavilion. Two months later, Imagineers submitted their proposal for what they were then calling the Land Food Pavilion. (laughs) The Land... It's Land Slash Food Pavilion. So... Its overarching theme was to be the symbiosis between Earth and humankind. The underlying idea was that creative partnerships between humans and nature are achievable to improve inefficient ecosystems without exploiting them for selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. This idea of the pavilion, developed by Rolly Crump's team, is shockingly similar to what we actually got on opening day. Its two-story layout was not dissimilar to the actual pavilion, The upper level would contain the entrance, a turntable restaurant, which they called the turntable restaurant, and the entrance to a 3D theater. Below would sit the so-called food fair, where the farmer's market would eventually sit. On the north side of the food court would be the craft kitchen cabaret and the exit to the 3D theater, while on the south side of the food court would be something called the magic chef show. Uh, More on that a little later. The centerpiece boat ride would take up the entire west side of the ground floor in this plan, as it was originally intended to be much more extensive. Even in this early plan, guests would enter the pavilion by passing Walt Paraguay's tile mural, depicting abstract representations of a cross-section of the Earth's crust. But they would also encounter a main entrance featuring a sculpted island of waterfalls and rock, landscaped with a variety of green plants and exotic flowers. Later to be, uh, uh, you know, abstracted into a sign. Yeah, exactly. Sounds almost like the poly lobby. That's true. Sounds lovely. I mean, gosh, I know we're talking about the concept, but a moment for Walt Paraguay's tile mural. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I just love that they knew knew this early on that that's what they wanted to do. And boy, did they. How good is that? Yeah. Long may it rain. Mm-hmm. As I alluded to before, in this scheme, the Pavilion's Theater was meant to contain a 3D theater using a new Todd AO developed 70 millimeter 3D film process. It would focus on showing man and his festivals around the world in celebration of food and bountiful harvests. The best part of this plan, however, was the film's pre show which was said to consist of a filmed sampling of the theme of food as represented by famous artists throughout history. I just love that. Who came? uh, John Hinch is bound to come up with that. Could be. Yeah. (laughs) Theme of food as represented by great artists. Here Rembrandt paints an apple. Proceeding downstairs, we could take in the craft kitchen cabaret a roughly 10-minute-long audio-animatronic show. As described, the show sounds similar to the final thing, hosted by an audio-animatronic hostess, 
and featuring musical numbers from the four food groups. There would only be one difference. This version of the show would be standing room only. No, thank you. Yeah, that's that's a big note from me, man. That was an improvement that mm -hmm. actually happened. Located directly across the main concourse from the Kitchen Cabaret, the Magic Chef show was meant to focus on food preparation. This, too, was to be a short performance for a limited audience and would be repeated periodically. The show would feature a comical routine, an interplay between a live chef and a mechanical robot. By watching the repartee and demonstrations of food preparation by the chef and robot, guests would learn important points about preparing tasty, nutritious meals inspired by the craft kitchen. Well, that's interesting. So this feels Kitchen Cabaret and Magic Chef show much more post-show uh, to the main attraction than what ended up happening, which is Kitchen Cabaret being a legit attraction in its own right. Yeah, it totally feels transcender to me. And yeah, I guess because Bird and the Robot makes me the the Magic Chef show makes me think of Bird and the Robot because mm -hmm. I'd imagine this wacky robot arm chopping peppers or whatever it would be interesting and using craft products to yeah, create of course, delicious of things course. yeah the centerpiece boat ride as i've mentioned was pretty similar to the final show that we actually got although it had a few extra scenes and a more elaborate queue the queue was originally meant to be a sculpted alcove resembling a bower enclosure of beautifully colored vines the vines would form a coved ceiling overhead with dropping tentacles that would form the queue guide rails. The vine enclosure would feature a stylized painted background over the walls and ceilings. So this was kind of like an aesthetic connection to the Symphony of the Seed scene. Which would have been amazing. Yeah, it'd be really nice. Those vine handrails it would have been very sort of Art Nouveau, I imagine, mm -hmm. feel to everything. Once you were on the ride, this Symphony of the Seeds segment sounds much like the eventual ride, but it would have had the addition of projected time-lapse photography of growing seeds projected onto contoured and undulating surfaces all around. Very true From, life adventure there. Yes, totally. Yeah. From here, you'd proceed into the jungle scene, similar to the final ride, and then the desert. The desert would have had a little more action than the one today. It would have had a menacing giant rattlesnake on a rock shelf beside the boats and a cave with wild cats snarling at passengers. Thrilling. It's like the Jungle Cruise. Next up was a scene that wouldn't make it into the final ride, which took place in the marshland biome of a mangrove and cypress swamp. It would have had a dank and musty atmosphere and, said the treatment, a sinister feeling in the air. <laughs> a thick, low fog would sit on the dark, disturbing water, and the sky above would be overcast, and a thunder and lightning storm would break out as it rains. We'd see blue herons, egret, and sandhill cranes, and a giant crocodile would swim by. This is moody. Yeah. Man, the swamp ride. <laughs> the swamp ride made real. This would lead to the so-called erosion scene, <laughs> said the treatment. The rain continues, and our boat passes a low line of ragged hills that are being assailed by the downpour. We can see the effects of water erosion on the sides of the hills, where deep ravines are washed away by the force of the rain. We pass between the low hills, and the sound of rain is suddenly replaced by a tremendous roaring sound. 
Well, that's good ideas never die because that's kind of what ended up happening in the uh, the the first room. Now of living yeah, with the land, it, that's interesting. Yeah, when they redid it, it made me wonder if that was an intentional homage or if it was yeah. just a coincidence wonder. because it is an odd coincidence. Uh, after erosion scene, we'd pass into a familiar scene done in a completely different way. The setting is a turn of the century farm. But across a cornfield, we would see the thing causing the loud roar we heard before. It's the huge black funnel of an oncoming tornado heading uh, right course. at us. Of course. The tornado would seem to move up and over the farmhouse while driving wind blew everything around. Now, how would they do this? <laughs> On the porch of the house, the family dog would howl a warning of the tornado while chickens and ducks in the front yard tried to hold their ground in the face of the wind. Orchard trees would bend and sway in the wind, and the weather vane on top of the barn would spin wildly. The sky would darken, and a tremendous bolt of lightning would strike the weather vane. Again, Jeff, this all sounds very expensive. Yeah, and to what end? I mean, do you think about what they ended up doing to show, like, the hardness of the prairie? That seems completely sufficient. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is this like supposed to be a thrill element? Maybe <laughs> it is. Kind I don't of. Know. Light. I mean, they wanted to get those lightning strikes in there for years into something or the other. I guess. So bizarre. Yeah. But yeah, as the as the scene is now, it's kind of like the end point of like, all right, well, we had all these difficult places, but then you know, man tamed the countryside, and now we're we have a little nice little house here on the farm. There's no tornado. Mm. It's rough, man. As the full force of the storm hit, we would duck into the old barn, where the barn theater would await, just as it does today. This scene was intended to illustrate the vast amount of progress achieved by man in the 20th century, and would have hundreds of images following the boats along a curved wall screen. So a little more elaborate than what we actually got. The barn scene would end with a message about how writers would now see what the future holds. Here, the boats would enter what was called the future farm scene. It would consist of three sections, a controlled forest, desert, and marshland, and would show how new technology has progressed the possibilities of growing food in what was once thought to be uncontrollable environments. So th in this one, there's a direct connection between the scenes that we saw and each of the greenhouses so that's kind of ah, interesting. that's interesting yeah at the far end of each growing section said the imagineers we will see a simulated diorama of trees and vegetation in their wild and uncontrolled state in front of these dioramas we will see clean beautiful rows of growing fruits and vegetables people will be working and harvesting in the growing areas to produce these foods in new and exciting ways Many things here do remain the same today. You have vegetables growing without soil, etc. A lot of similar things. Uh, a fourth area would take boats past aquaculture activities in a red light environment before guests disembarked. So not too dissimilar from what we actually got. At this point, we have a pretty clear vision for the pavilion, but there were still some questions. By the end of 1978, some of Kraft's advisors were still worried about putting all their eggs in the Carl Hodges basket, so to speak. They thought there might be alternative approaches and viewpoints to consider. They just weren't sure about this Carl Hodges guy they heard about. 
But apparently a visit to his environmental research lab by the craft team that December was very successful. And the craft people were blown away by what they saw. And it was decided that Bill Beers needed to visit Hodge's lab as soon as possible. Dang. So Hodge's apparently he had his pitch down. The big cheese. Yeah. By this time, Beers had become cheerleader number one for the Epcot project. For Christmas of 1978, Card Walker sent him a Mickey Mouse watch as a thank you. Beers continued to visit Wed for working sessions about the pavilion. In January of 1979, they viewed storyboards for the Craft Cabaret show, including a performance by Latin Lucy, <laughs> prob- probably a precursor to Bonnie Appetit. Okay. I've seen there's a lot of concept art for cabaret out there, and some of them show like Bonnie Appetit with kind of like the fruit. Uh, on her head, you know, Carmen Miranda style. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of them called her Juicy Lucy. And one I of do remember that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this must have been a an early concept. On a visit to Walt Disney World in February of 1979, Beers's wife said that in her husband's entire career, she had never seen him get excited about anything as he had been about participating in Epcot. a boy. Yeah. At a meeting of the Kraft Epcot Task Force Committee in Chicago <laughs> in March, it was made clear to a team of WED representatives that Beer was very hyped about Epcot and that, as he was meant to be retiring that summer, he wanted to make sure all the key people at Kraft, including the incoming chairman and CEO, were behind the Epcot project. So he basically made the WED people come and like vouched for them to the new people. Like, wow. no, you need to listen to these guys. We are behind this. Um, Beers had been to the environmental research lab at this point, said that he was still on a high from his visit to Dr. Hodges. Yeah. He even wanted to get Kraft involved in sponsoring Hodges' work. So very impressed, Mr. Beers. There were still some issues to iron out, though. Summit Kraft had concerns about the message of the film attraction, feeling that the festivals and celebrations theme was too self-serving and should have a broader land-related theme beyond food production. One other craft idea was to have the nutritional values of the food purchased printed out on the cash register tapes of the food fair. This is so weird when you see corporations behaving well. Uh, again, <laughs> we talked about the GE thing where they were afraid that Horizons was, you know, the the first version was they didn't want anything to be too commercial. It's like, right? Yeah. Totally. Who are you? I don't understand what's happening. But yeah, this is another example, I guess. It's yeah, it's so strange. I like the idea of the nutritional info on the cash register. They were ahead of their time with that. That's true. Yeah. In April of 1979, another treatment of the ride was published, stating that the story would be about how quote man prevailed upon the earth, learning to live in harmony with nature by increasing its productivity and managing the land for the good of all. In case you ever rode the original ride and wondered what was even going on in the trippy Symphony of the Seed opening scene. It was to depict how, quote, all stories of life begin with a seed, an incredibly powerful computer that contains in its genetic code a formula for survival developed over the ages. It was to show in an interpretive way how seeds are blown by the wind, they find a patch of soil to send down roots, they reach skyward with their stalks and vines, and explode with flowers bearing fruit. So, very interpretive. Yes. If you thought the earlier descriptions of the ride sounded pretty pricey, you were right. 
By April 1979, there had been a wave of cost cutting to bring the pavilion in line financially after its estimated cost had blown well over, gasp, $40 million. These cuts included downsizing the seating areas of the food show, the, the movie theater, and the rotating restaurant. It also, sadly, saw the elimination of the Robot Chef show. R.I.P. But it sounds like the loss of the robot chef show was the gain of kitchen cabaret so i'm fine with that yeah i'm i'm yeah i'm down with that absolutely one other casualty of cost cutting was some of the non-public growing areas located outside the pavilion which weren't meant to be seen from the ride but which would have been viewable by tours without these extra greenhouses it became highly questionable whether the pavilion would be able to grow enough food to supply the turntable restaurant and food fair which had been the original plan. Carl Hodges had apparently been iffy about that proposition from the start, feeling that food grown backstage should be used to assure a quality show for the growing areas at the end of the boat ride. Hmm. Development continued apace. In May of 1979, a first draft of a treatment for the 3D film was submitted. It was to be a 15-minute film called Man's Partnership with the Land and would use theme balloons as an imaginary vehicle to take us on a 3D journey. The film would begin with a tour of the wonders of nature around the world, not dissimilar to Soren. Then it would talk about nature's adversity, featuring spectacular footage of volcanoes, floods, hurricanes, and other disasters. And floods! And floods! The third act, Creative Partnership with the Land, was to be a global tour of innovative and forward-thinking planting methods and agriculture. Now, this part was the seed of what became symbiosis. Uh, many of the proposed scenes in the treatment of this segment actually appeared in the final film when it was made. The final part of the original concept was a short celebration of the land, showing harvest and land celebrations from around the world, from Oktoberfest to American state fairs to Japan's Day of the Rice God. So this was covering a lot of territory. Yeah, I would say so. Weirdly, although the final film was developed out of the creative partnership section of the treatment, it was originally decided to expand the celebration of the land segment and make the film out of that. One other element that would not survive was the 3D nature of the film. By November of 1979, Kodak had signed on to sponsor an Images and Imagination Pavilion, and as part of their deal, they would have the exclusive rights to make a 3D film for Epcot. And so the future symbiosis became a standard format film. It's weird that they didn't make a circle vision carousel film. You know, it's like, oh, that'd be interesting. That was 3D. In 3D, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's always looking for new ways. I love the Epcot notion that like every film presentation would be in a different format. Yeah, I know. It's very lofty. It very. Uh, one last element that I'll mention here was the idea of nomenclature. Now, it's clear by this point that Marty Sklar wasn't happy with the simple name, The Land, and was pushing for the pavilion to be called Listen to the Land. Secondary proposals included The Land Experience or The Land Adventure. Kraft, however, didn't like these, uh, but agreed to listen to possible alternatives. By August of 1980, Disney and Kraft had come up with a massive list of name possibilities. Some of my favorites from the wed list include Land Alive! Exclamation point. <laughs> Celebrate the Land! Exclamation point. Also had Harvest 
New Harvest, Harvest the Future, The Land Newborn, oh. Harvest Horizons, A Thief, and The Bountiful Land, which just makes me think of the good earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kraft, on the other hand, went wild with, among others, <laughs> Terravillion. Ah, yes. Terrarama. Okay. Eden 2, mm. Terradome, Landome, The Good Earth. Oh, there you go. Garden Sphere, and <laughs> Avant Gardens. Oh, boy. Avant Gardens. Oh, the Good Earth would have been pretty good. Good that, Earth would not be bad at all. No, no. I love the land, and yeah. I would have loved them to call it the seas like they were originally going to do. Yes. Um, absolutely. The, the, that, too. And I love, you know, journeys into imagination. I mean, like, that is great, I think. But uh, I like Horizons, the land. I like these short short ones too yeah. i know why marty had a vendetta against them it's like come on marty it's it's short and to the point and well bill yeah. beers would agree with you bill beers had held firm in his belief that the simple and direct approach was the best and reiterated his support for the name the land and marty conceded and the land was on its way to reality Ladies and gentlemen, Kraft proudly presents a show that has the whole town cooking, the Kitchen Cabaret. And now, here's your hostess, Bonnie Appetit. Oh dear, it's time for another meal. Yes, there are days when I feel downcast and get the mealtime blues. If I don't plan a proper meal, my menu will be bad news All the mealtime blues can get you Every time you die We all can beat that bad And end up feeling fine So on those days when we feel downcast We'll give you all some clues To work magic in our kitchen Mm, yeah, and chase away the mealtime blues. Now the timing's right, the show is prepared. Let me serve it on up to you. We talked a bit about the beginnings of the company that would go on to become AT&T in the communications episode, so it seems only fair we do a little craft talk in this episode. Do our craft work. Michael, craft is one of those companies, like so many that were Disney sponsors, that really got into my brain and gave me some brand preference. Yeah, whatever they paid for this sponsorship was worth it. 
because it made me a craft adherent. I mean, you know, I'm I'm still a Kikoman adher- adherent, but uh, oh yeah, totally. Craft lasted a long time. But regardless, Kraft is the name of one J.L. Kraft from Ontario who moved to Illinois via Buffalo, New York, to go into business for himself as a cheese man in 1914. Nice. Kraft would patent the first pasteurized cheese and go on to have his business boom during World War I with his cheese being able to travel all over the world. But what would Kraft do with his newfound success? Invest in a tourist attraction in Central Florida, of course. He was involved with the 1920s development in Lake Wales, Florida with the Henshaw family to draw tourists away from the coast to central Florida with its Bach Tower and Gardens being planned uh, to, to make a golfing and lakeside resort. Wow. Unfortunately, this project did not work out, but the Henshaw family used the existing construction to create the Chalet Suzanne, a legendary restaurant I'm so bitter I missed out on. Sounds pretty wild. Chalet Suzanne. Yeah, it was made famous by restaurant reviewer Duncan Hines. Hmm. Uh, The Chalet Suzanne was legendary for its food and unique setting with the building added on to in all kinds of unconventional ways. The Henshaws ran it only until a few years ago when they closed up shop. I mean, it was just within a decade. Oh, man. So sad, but like Burt Reynolds and... Kevin Costner and Bob Hope, everybody. It was like the place to go. And it was less than an hour away from Disney World. Crazy. I had no idea that. Oh, man. I, I hate it when things survive just up to recently. And then you find exactly. out about them. It's such a burn. Dear Mr. Henshaw, please That's open right. your restaurant. Well, the craft company's history would be one of mergers and acquisitions. I tell you what, following like food history, it's really, yeah. it's uh, kill or be killed. It's, it's a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, in yeah. 1930, they themselves would be acquired by the National Dairy Company, a company that was busy consolidating regional ice cream brands under the Steel Test label. Uh-huh. The company would have a presence in both the American World's Fairs of the decade. In 1933, the company would debut its Miracle Whip Dressing at the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago. (laughs) Part of the innovation of a Miracle Whip, or even Philadelphia cream cheese, which I may add was acquired like everything else, was how well blended it was, which they make a huge deal about, the blending. (laughs) Um, It was a big deal in all the literature and in live demonstrations of blending and packaging cream cheese. Do not miss this. Uh, I love the, the name Miracle Whip. Which I never really thought about before makes so much sense in this context of debuting yes. at a world's fair. Yes. The miracle of blending our emulsion of whip. And that it's not mayonnaise. It's, no. It's a dressing. It's a miracle whip. Yes. Uh to me, though, the star has always been the bizarre recipes and the 1933-34 fair is no exception with their cookbook called sweet savories from a century of progress. Mm. Let's take a look. Shall we? It starts out conservatively enough with a cheese tray, but soon we get a signature item, the century of progress grilled sandwich complete with a painting of an old man with a monocle. So what are the ingredients here? White bread, melted butter and craft creamed old English cheese. 
that's it. I'm I'm in. Yeah, me too. It just, I don't know if it needs to be in a cookbook, but, (laughs) but they say it's ideal for luncheon, afternoon bridge, midnight supper. It should be grilled immediately before serving accompanied by pickles, olives, or other suitable relish and beverages. Oh, that's a good idea. Does sound good. Yeah. Well, if you think that sounds good, how about a frosted salad loaf? Oh, I'm just going to have to read this whole thing as it's very mystifying to me. And just enter the theater of your mind. I would encourage you, listener, because <laughs> there's so many la- layers. Remove crusts from a loaf of fine, even textured day old bread. Cut four lengthwise slices. Place a slice on a platter and spread with Kraft mayonnaise. Then covered with peeled sliced tomatoes. Spread another slice of bread with mayonnaise and place the dressing side on the tomatoes. So you've got double bread sandwich tomatoes. Then spread a generous layer of Kraft K, which I think is kind of American cheese, and cover the third slice of bread. Spread this slice with mayonnaise and cover with crisp lettuce. Uh, Spread the fourth slice of bread with mayonnaise and place on the lettuce. Soften three packages of Philadelphia cream cheese with milk and spread on the outside of the loaf. Garnish with parsley or watercress and small reddish roses. Place in the refrigerator about an hour before serving and then when the guests arrive, Bring in the loaf and hear the exclamations. Michael, this sounds like a nightmare for you. I would I would have some exclamations when they bring in that loaf. <laughs> that is a nightmare. That is my nightmare. It's just like uh, what powders, would it even taste powders like? favorite. I don't I don't know. It just it tastes be, like it would be cold and creamy. <laughs> cold and creamy. Mm. Uh there are Mayonnaise crisps, a recipe that includes small crisp crackers, mayo, and egg whites. What? An anchovy and egg salad that included lettuce, celery, five eggs, anchovies, and French dressing. (laughs) It's not a salad. Yeah. And a Welsh rabbit cheese dip, because why not? That doesn't even cover all the mayonnaise adventures in this cookbook, Michael. You really missed out on this era of cooking. It was extremely mayo forward. I was I was apparently born in the correct time because hey, I great, missed out on this. Mercy. The age yeah. of mayo. I, uh, <laughs> lots of aspic with a dollop of mayo on top, I would imagine. Oh, <laughs> man. In 1939, Kraft and Seal Test had a giant building in New York to showcase their revolutionary methods in production. You could watch milk being pasteurized and bottled with enough capacity for a city of 15,000 people. Quote, the manufacturer freezing and packaging of ice creams, sherbets, and ices is shown. Machines with almost human fingers demonstrate the packaging of Kraft's famous Philadelphia brand cream cheese. That doesn't sound terrifying. <laughs> Industry. <laughs> almost human fingers. It's almost the real thing. Someday we will find the human finger recipe, but for now, enjoy our blended dairy products. Well, three cookbooks from the New York World's Fair exist. We have one for Philadelphia cream cheese, one for Miracle Whip, 
and one for Velveeta, which was a new product also acquired by Kraft. In it lies a recipe for shrimp rabbit, which is a play on Welsh rabbit, which seemed to be a dish Kraft was always shooting for. It would later spawn a substance called Cheese Whiz, which we all have some sort of relation to. Uh, you know, I think of the Charlotte Coliseum, Michael. Uh, <laughs> when I think of Cheese Whiz, memories. Uh, but the shrimp rabbit included shrimps, chopped onion, two tablespoons of butter, green pepper, pimento, a half pound of Velveeta, oh. milk, and Worcestershire sauce. And essentially, you cook all the other ingredients and serve with melted Velveeta on top with hot sauce. Oh, man. The shrimp rabbit. So I'm sure the shrimp really comes out when you've got a half pound of Velveeta on top. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Also on offer was a pamphlet called The American Way of Progress, which outlined the growth of craft since its founding, including its master blending technology. So blending, Michael. It should have had blending at uh, Epcot. I know. They should have had a blending demonstration. I wonder if they pitched that. They're like, we could do the blending thing. (laughs) The robot chef could do the blending. That's true. Kraft would go on in the next decade to participate in the new medium of television with the prestige anthology drama show, Kraft Television Theater. Uh, This was one of the first big TV shows running through 1958. It was filmed in Studio 8H of Rockefeller Center, that of Saturday Night Live fame. It involved all kinds of people, including Rod Serling, Helen Hayes, Jack Lemmon, James Dean, and one of his last TV appearances and launching the careers of many, including Hope Lang. During this time, one Ed Herlihy would become the announcer of the show after being involved with Kraft on the radio and come to be known as the voice of Kraft all the way through his retirement in the 1980s, a voice so recognizable that he would be recognized by a blind man he was helping across the street one time, a story he evidently liked to tell quite often. And one that would be memorialized by the New York Times as a voice of cheer and cheese. Oh, I'm jealous of that. I know. I'll take that uh, moniker. Kraft would keep on churning out the hits on grocer's shelves and on television through the rest of the century, going on to produce another legendary show called The Kraft Music Hall, which, I mean, what a missed opportunity for the Kitchen Cabaret name. Yeah, really. Totally synergy. This was a retread of a radio show in the 30s and would be hosted by all kinds of people, including Milton Berle, the ever-present John Davidson, and guests such as Ed McMahon and Woody Allen. I want to see those two together. Yeah. In addition, Kraft would have a run of shows called Kraft Mystery Theater and Kraft Suspense Theater. So the company had a quite a lengthy relationship with the airwaves when they signed on to sponsor a pavilion at Epcot. So TV was some of the first fruits we saw of the new partnership. First up was Kraft Salutes Disneyland's 25th anniversary in 1980, hosted by none other than Danny Kaye. So already a little pre-Epcot prep here. A cast of familiar characters would participate, including Ruth Buzzy and Michael Jackson, who were featured in the special Sandy at Disneyland, which we recently watched over on the Medfield College Film Society. I love they have their favorite go-tos. Yeah, get like, well, we gotta get Jacko. That went so well. Yeah, really. Uh, also on Medfield from the previous year, we viewed 1982's Kraft Salutes Walt Disney World's 10th Anniversary, 
Starring the Disney power couple of Dean Jones and Michelle Lee with son Ricky Schroeder and daughter Dana Plato. What a family casting, Michael. Yeah, that is a power move. That is a power casting top to bottom. Yeah. I also had John Schneider of Dukes of Hazard fame with a young Michael Keaton. It, that is really something. If you haven't seen it, you should probably go see it. Yeah, I encourage everybody to seek it out and uh listen to our episode about it too because it is quite as it is a musical it's it's got eileen brennan in it yes it's got it's got all sorts of people in it and it is very odd very odd indeed good contemporary footage though oh the best yeah if you have listened to that episode uh, you would know about this little wrinkle Kraft would release Disney-themed recipes surrounding these, starting with the Disneyland special. And not only that, but they would have a little infomercial commercial break narrated by none other than our man Ed Herlihy. So let's take a listen to some of that. A fantasy land of special treats awaits your family when you plan a meal full of dreamy-tasting recipes. And you know that tonight's ideas will be fun to make and fun to eat because they're from Kraft. This salad topping is sprinkled with magic because it's made with rich Kraft Real mayonnaise and mustard. Layer torn spinach leaves with assorted vegetables. Top with fruit and seal in all the crispness with that elegant creamy topping. This and all of tonight's recipes are in tonight's listing section of TV Guide magazine. It's nice to know that anything your taste desires can come true in your kitchen with the good food and good food ideas from Kraft. If you've got big eaters around, these Disneyland-inspired Frontierland recipes will make everyone happy. They're full of the substantial flavors hearty appetites crave, and they're sure to be good because they're from Kraft. The salad's an interesting combination of favorites, starting with chili powder added for a change of taste to ever-popular Kraft French dressing. Mexicorn rounds out the flavors, and shoestring potatoes add extra crunch. For the main course, take a less expensive cut of meat, like flank steak, and add the snappy taste of Kraft Hickory Smoke-flavored barbecue sauce. Used as a marinade, it adds flavor through and through. Cook indoors or out, and the tangy barbecue aroma will bring them in from the back 40. For dessert, round up the fixings for brownie s'mores. These start with a brownie mix that you stir with walnuts. Then have the brownies, and sandwich in marvelous Kraft Jet Puff marshmallows, letting them melt in all that toasty flavor in this outdoor classic. It's easy to pioneer new ways of serving old favorites with the successful good food and good food ideas from Kraft. An adventure land of special flavors will get attention from your family when you make tonight's Disneyland-inspired dishes. And the recipes are from Kraft. So they're easy to make, and you just know everyone will love them. It'll be appetites ahoy with this tuna casserole. Pineapple gives a Polynesian flavor to our tuna and rice mixture, and flavorful Velveeta processed cheese spread blended with pineapple juice makes exceptionally tasty sauce. Add almonds on top and call all hands aboard for a real family-pleasing entree. Now give a quick bread buttery flavor with parquet margarine. Then add bananas and spices, some nuts, of course. And it's one recipe everyone will want to pirate. Adventures and eating will always be close at hand when you use your imagination and the good food and good food ideas from Kraft. 
A Tomorrowland of food ideas is yours today through the convenience of the newest kitchen equipment. And you can make these craft recipes with or without the latest appliances. Start a cheese ball with the exquisite taste of Cracker Barrel brand cheddar cheese. Use a food processor and cut the time it takes to get the texture nice and smooth. Then add cream cheese and seasonings, and you've instantly blended those unique flavors into a stellar-tasting, spreadable treat. Microwave cooking looms large on the horizon. Here we use it to develop a smooth white sauce spiced with zesty craft-grated Parmesan for a little extra bite. Then take tender fish fillets. Top with the sauce, micro-cook the combination, and serve with more Parmesan on top. Crepes are a recent star in the food galaxy. For dessert, spread them with cream cheese for out-of-this-world flavor in a type of crepe Suzette. Top them with a naturally good flavor of Kraft strawberry preserves blended with wine for one heavenly combination. Man, Ed's got a voice that just will not quit. That is the voice of a man who wants to sell you some mayonnaise. That's right. It's the voice of cheer and cheese. Cheer and cheese. Uh, It is funny to see how clearly their key brands were mayonnaise, yeah. Cream cheese yep. and processed cheese, processed yep. American cheese. And uh really makes sense uh, why the Kitchen Cabaret lineup was what it was. And yeah, sauces. Sauces, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty wild. <laughs> I love the Tomorrowland focus on the technology of, you know, the, the microwaves microwave. sort of thing now. Someday. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. 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 That music is very meditative, though. It is. It is. Very circular. Uh, it's what you need when you're eating, like, tuna salad with pineapples and Velveeta. Right. <laughs> 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 You know, they even raise fish in here. Fish? I wouldn't lie to you. That's no fish story. I tell you, nothing surprises me in this place, and that's what makes it so surprising. Oh, Carl Hodges. Roy, this is Dr. Carl Hodges. He's the director of the Environmental Research Laboratory at the University of Arizona. He is also the principal consultant to the Land Pavilion right here, and one of the most respected scientists in his field, the deep bow. Yes, he already has my respect. What's new, Doc? Well, the most exciting thing that's new are the possibilities that exist today for eliminating starvation and malnutrition on this planet. Uh, Did you know that of the thousands of plants that are possible food sources that we use only eight to produce about 90% of our food, and really most of that comes from only three, wheat, rice, and corn. One of the things we're doing here is broadening the base by looking at new plants. And, you know, the technology exists. Really all we need is the, the courage and the innovation and the ability and the will to do it same as our business <laughs> you know i don't mean to sound frivolous but doc is there any way that you could maybe grow an olive with a martini in it oh come no, on 
It's not terribly high on our priority, I'm sorry. Uh, Carl, thank you very much. It was nice talking to nice you. Talking nice to you. dishing the dirt with you, I must say. Come we'll back. see you again. Come back anytime. Right. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we mentioned how impressed Kraft was with Carl Hodges. You need to talk a little bit about Carl Hodges. He was born in 1937 in Texas, would go on to get his degree in mathematics from the University of Arizona in 1959. After his graduation, he would join Arizona's Institute of Atmospheric Physics and supervise their solar energy lab. In 1963, he would make history, developing the first solar desalinization plant in Puerto Penasco, Mexico. Desalinization was having quite the surge during this time with plants all over the continent trying different methods. This is a big uh, Kennedy push, Michael. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. I feel that's something we've taken our eyes off of, but something that is probably really needed right now. Yeah. They had a, they had a plant in Wrightsville Beach, uh, oh, North no Carolina. Kidding. One wow. in Maine. They had them all over the continent. Uh, but these were powered by fossil fuels. And Hodges was working on one that ran on the power of old Mr. Energy himself. Well, we can see Hodges working on this technology in the USAID documentary called The Ancient Quest, which is really something. Hodges and his team would donate the fresh water they created to the people of Puerto Penasco, and the need was definitely there. So between the desert climate and need, it was a perfect fit for their research. By 1966, however, the Puerto Penasco lab had received a grant and started to power their desalinization plant with diesel engines, and Hodges would turn his efforts to finding ways to use salt water in agricultural applications. First, there was aquaculture, we all a word we all know, and Hodges began experimenting with farming blue shrimp in saltwater ponds in Puerto Penasco. With the shrimp ponds, he placed a system that also grew halophytes, or saltwater-tolerant plants with nutritional value. The halophytes would grow and be fertilized by the shrimp's waste, and the shrimp would benefit from the nutrients the halophytes would provide. You can see a version of this system in the last greenhouse in the land, and the system would yield a great deal of shrimp. As this project went on, Hodges would also focus on farming the halophytes and growing mangroves and other halophytes for use as animal feed. I mean, they would grow it for lumber uh, in the attached fields with the shrimp waste that would be kind of attached to everything they're doing. Just a brilliant system. That is so cool. This is the stuff that blew my mind when I was a kid about the land, like the circular circularity of the system of, you know, the the animals nibble on the roots of the plants that grow in the water and the waste from the animals fertilizes the plants. And, it's uh, it was so cool to me, and it is. I mean, it still is. It still is. Yeah, Hodges also experimented with crops like sorghum that didn't need much water, and other plants that were less wasteful. He also used saltwater tolerant plants to trap CO two from the air and soil, and enrich the soil with carbon in the process. Basically, he was seemingly a seemingly endless fountain of new ideas of how to combat climate change, and in the process, feed a growing global population and potentially impoverished areas. So a pretty good guy to have around, Michael. Yeah, and way ahead of the curve. My gosh. Yes, I know. So Hodges partnered with Kraft and Disney to create a farm of tomorrow in Florida. But the first taste of what was to come took place in Chicago in 1979 at the Newspaper Food Editors Conference. There, Kraft and Hodges presented Tomorrow's Food Today at the Park West Theater. 
Hodges had a message of optimism to share with the editors, saying, quote, Contrary to the opinion of many and their dire predictions for disaster, I believe we are not limited to current technology, that there are many exciting new technologies that will be applied to the future. He explained different methods of possible solutions, whether it be irrigating the desert with salt water to grow halophytes, which Hodges predicted could feed up to 1 billion people, or developing plants that used less water. But since this was also a craft joint, they had the food of the future. Yes, that's right. On the menu was some bib lettuce grown in the desert with minimal water in an inflatable plastic space. They also had some blue shrimp on order. According to the Post Crescent, quote, bib lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, mushrooms, carrots, and hard-cooked egg slices, of course, were served in long-stemmed glass compotes atop apple or strawberry-shaped plates. Centering the compote was a delicious dressing, guacamole mousse, especially developed for the event by one of the Kraft Home economists. The shrimp served were firmer than those grown in the ocean, but tasted equally as good. And then we get the recipe for the guacamole mousse. Score! Guess what it had in it, Michael? I uh, Mayonnaise, I'm guessing. Yes, and Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> my hatred of mayonnaise is balanced by my love of Worcestershire sauce. Uh, that's true. That's true. I, I just can't believe they didn't make a sauce that was just mayonnaise and Worcestershire sauce in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't know what it would have been called, but like mix. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so he's showing I mean, and all these newspaper editors were so blown away by carl hodges again you know he is telling them all about you know hydroponics and growing stuff in the desert all you need is sunlight it's just uh it's changing minds and you know this is this pavilion is kind of putting these things in motion and craft is being a part of it so very impressive it was the bib lettuce that hung in the imaginations of the craft executives. And in May of 1982, the bib lettuce grown hydroponically at the ERL laboratory at the University of Arizona was put on grocer's shelves as a part of the test market for craft foods. Craft began marketing the lettuce, cucumbers, and cherry tomatoes under the Sun Seasons brand name. Hodges glowed to papers saying that yields were far greater than field-grown produce and plants can be located almost anywhere there is sunlight. And because of the growing method, substandard water could even be used. Another advantage was transport time. Because they could be grown anywhere there was sunlight, these plants could be on grocer's shelves within 24 to 48 hours as opposed to the 7 to 10 days it took for farm-grown produce. The lettuce would come in a container of peat the original seed was planted in, Kraft called it a, quote, cup of freshness. Huh. So pretty cool. They tried doing uh, the Carl Hodges lettuce in grocery stores. Yeah, they uh, were clearly, like, really sold on this. I mean, the fact that they went to the trouble of building a brand around it even, I hate yeah. that didn't take off because that is really neat. I mean, you could see how, you imagine how excited Carl Hodges must have been because this is like, feeding like real money into his research i mean uh yeah that could have been a really productive cycle that's great absolutely well the erl was designing all kinds of controlled environment agriculture or cea installations all over the world they're in abu dhabi they were in india uh, they were a natural fit to help design the farm of the future at epcot 
Along with Hodges, who was the coordinator of biological displays, came Merle Jensen, also of the University of Arizona, as the team leader of developmental agricultural systems, responsible for a lot of what you would see on day one at the land's greenhouses. It was Jensen who was responsible for the famed spinning drum of, yep, you guessed it, bib lettuce. A drum that you would see as the last thing before you left the greenhouse. This drum was meant to simulate a zero-gravity approach to agriculture, where you would put the light source in the middle and the centrifuge would create an artificial gravity to inform the roots of where to grow. This was mentioned everywhere. It was a darling of the newspapers and even pictured in the Abrams book we read as kids. It was quite memorable and then later replaced with a study that the land did with NASA. But yeah, the spinning drum, Michael. Absolutely. An, an iconic moment and shown in every Epcot promo film. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, it's, suffice it to say that Merle Jensen was critical to the planning and implementation of the exhibits in the land. Also on the ground was a Dr. Henry Robitaille, who would serve as the manager, then director of science and technology at the land from 1980 to 2000. Uh, Michael, we have to get Merle Jensen and Henry Robitaille on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about a fixture. Yes. Well, the greenhouse through the years would go on to have many different evolutions and studies done, but the first big hits were, of course, the hybrid tilapia. And something I don't remember, the winged bean. Do you remember this, Michael? I don't remember the winged bean. That sounds like something I would remember. It was a seldom used legume that was versatile uh, and all the plant could be used for food. And it's something that newspapers all talked about, too. The winged bean. Uh, It's, I don't know. It's hard to imagine at the time that tilapia wasn't very popular But whenever harvest time came in the aqua cell, you could be sure that tilapia and channel catfish would be on the menu at the Good Turn restaurant, along with whatever vegetables they could get their hands on. Not sure about those winged beans, though. I don't know how long they made it, because I don't remember them at all. I don't either. I will say that the land was obviously the first place I ever heard of tilapia. And like 15 years later or 20 years later, when it started appearing on menus like across the country it was so exciting i was like oh my gosh it's tilapia's hit it big it's true yeah it did feel ahead of its time um yeah well for their part craft seemed happy with the partnership though i won't go into this attraction now in the kitchen cabaret you could catch some craft lookalikes in the kitchen crackpots in a show that cleverly towed the company line in a lovable way but yeah, they got some barbecue sauce, some Parmesan cheese, and mayo, not brand name, but very look-alike right there in plain view. It's like yeah. subliminal. Perhaps the most craft thing in the land was the farmer's market, though. A place, Michael, I always associated with your palate as a slightly older, more dignified youth than myself for some reason. <laughs> yes, I felt was... like you were a farmer's market man, and I was, you know, a Stargate guy just wanting a burger (laughs) such a connoisseur i you know i'm trying to remember my feelings at the time about the farmer's market i I, like i don't have any like really vivid food memories from there like i remember all they had but like i just wasn't uh you know bold enough to be like let's 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 go to the potato the potato building and get a potato you did get into baked potatoes. So this is why I have this association. I mean, I don't, I don't remember you getting anything from the, yeah, there, you know, but, but a little bit later, I guess. Yeah. 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 When I got into my potato phase. 
But a quick trip through would reveal some wonderful stalls. And now we know some of those signs were worked on by Doris Hardoon. Yeah. Just yeah. And here's a bit of wonderful copy around the time of the farmer's market opening. The foods offered at the farmer's market range from basic items such as soups, salads, and sandwiches to an assortment of more unusual selections. The cheese shop <laughs> for instance, provides a choice of three quiches as well as fried cheese and pastry. Mm. Various toppings are featured in the potato store where spuds are served with sour cream or beef tenderloin in a Madeira wine sauce. Oh, man. Come on now. In addition, visitors to the farmer's market can choose from ribs at the barbecue booth, chicken gumbo, and a pineapple boat at the soup and salad bar, or a country sampler full of salami, turkey, bologna, and cheese at the sandwich stand. I mean, the country sampler seems like it would be pretty interesting. I always think of salami when I think of the countryside. Yeah. A nice salami. Yeah, that sounds like a score for me. Everyone can enjoy the wide range of desserts at the farmer's market. The on-site bakery serves baked goods from Boston cream pie and cheesecake to hermit cookies with cinnamon and molasses. A selection of ice cream and yogurt is available at the ice cream shop. Michael, we got to make this hermit cookies. I I found the recipe. I want some hermit cookies. That sounds good. Peach, papaya, vegetable, and orange juice, along with other beverages, are served at the beverage house. I need to go to the beverage house, too. I need to live at the beverage. I kind of do live at the beverage house. Well, this is all makes me regret, uh, like, not fully embracing this to the level that I could have. Because this all sounds like this would be my destination. It does. See, I I have an association in my mind, and I think it's valid. I do, yeah. But, I mean, me too. One of those, like, uh, Madeira wine sauce steak baked potatoes, (laughs) man. Yes. And a papaya juice. And a papaya juice to go with it. And some hermit cookies for dessert. <laughs> it appears that Kraft got their back scratched. But you have to give them credit in that, uh, you know, the uh, the boat attraction spared no expense. And truly tapping into the experimental prototype concept. Perhaps better than anywhere else in the park. It's stunning to me it still exists in relatively the same format all these decades later. It's truly a testament to Carl Hodges, Merle Jensen, and all the folks at the University of Arizona, as well as Henry Rebitai and all the researchers at Epcot. Just really amazing. It's still there, and they're just doing research for 40 years. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's like, you know, like we've said, it's like the the one theme center that made it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And you can see all the fruit from it, that the literal and figurative. Yeah, doing what it was intended to do. Right. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Hodges passed away in 2021, but he left behind a legacy of research and institutions that owe him a tremendous debt. Just make believe you're a tiny little seed. A tiny little seed that's reaching up to meet your need. With the right amount of faith and the right amount of earth, you'll grow to see the sun shine on your day of birth. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land. Listen to the land. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land. 
When springtime comes, how can you tell? The air is always filled with orange blossoms. Come summertime, the warmest sunshine, and the world is full of flowers and good melon rinds. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine above. Listen to the land. Listen to the land. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine above. Listen to the land, listen to the land. When autumn falls, the Epcot soundscape in its early years was an endless stream of musical delights. So many memorable songs, most of them now long gone, were featured in its attractions and shows. Of course, the land was no exception. The land, in fact, played host to a number of Epcot hits due to its roster of attractions. The centerpiece boat ride had its theme, of course. But there was also the animatronic show Kitchen Cabaret, which is a listening treat from beginning to end, uh, including the entrance and exit music. It's all good. Oh, gosh, yeah. For sure. We'll be talking about the Epcot soundtrack in detail in future episodes, but it didn't seem right to let this episode go by without at least mentioning the songs of the land. After all, most Epcot fans have spent time with Listen to the Land stuck in their heads at one time or another. But as with most things... The land soundtrack could have been much different had its development taken the road not traveled. In 1978, Disney marketing guru Vince Jeffords, he of the Orange Bird creation fame, wanted to put together a combination book and record to tell the story of the land's boat ride. The book would feature Disney cartoon characters telling the story alongside photographs of the ride itself. Seeing as the first scene of the ride was called Symphony of the Seed, it only seemed natural that it have a musical accompaniment. And for this, Jeffords wanted either Henry Mancini, John Williams, or Burt Bacharach. Jeff. Oh, don't do this to me. It can't. I can't. I just Any of them would be perfect. But why the book concept? I, it all begins with story, I guess. I, but I, I, I want don't this understand. book record combo to exist. They did so many of these for attractions in the 70s. They did Country Bear Jamboree, America Sings, Hall of Presidents, many others. Uh, Orange Bird had one, a book and record combo. They never did any for any Epcot attractions. It would have been a natural, like for it Imagination. It really would have been. Yeah, uh, oh gosh, Imagination would have been perfect. World of Motion would have been great for it. Yeah. Uh, I I love this idea. I, I want somebody to like retroactively do one because it would have been perfect. Uh, just imagine cruising the land to the sounds of Burt Bacharach. Oh, I can imagine it. Uh, you know, happy with what happened, but Bacharach, come on. It's just wild to think about. At some point in this summer of 1978, it was floated that perhaps John Denver would be a good match to provide a song for the pavilion, which, to be honest, seems like a natural for the yes. time. Yes. Uh, Jerry Weintraub, who was Denver's manager at the time, came to WED to review the pavilion and was excited about having Denver participate. He was so into it, in fact, that he wanted Denver to be involved in more than just the musical aspect of the pavilion. That makes sense. He was a, you know, pretty environmental guy. Yeah, he was super involved with a lot of stuff at the time. Uh, well, talks continued, and in November of 1978, John Denver visited WED. He was super enthusiastic about everything, 
said that he wanted to be involved in the project in any way he could, and if Wed didn't have anything for him to do, he would just like to hang around and watch the development of Epcot. So he was a fan. Yeah, I mean, he, again, he was really ahead of the curve in environmentalism. So I'm sure this was thrilling to him to think, and he got it. You know, it's uh, something we didn't mention enough with the Carl Hodges segment is that this was going to be the biggest audience Carl Hodges ideas would ever have by a factor of, I don't know, a lot. Yeah. And this ended up being very successful platform. I mean, look at where, you know, where did we learn about all this stuff at Epcot, you yeah. know, and how many other people could say the same thing. So uh, I think John Denver probably understood that appeal of the broadcast that Disney could do. Yeah. I think a, a lot of these people's interest was the innate understanding of communicating to a large audience and how this would be able to reach an audience that they could just not achieve otherwise. And it worked. And to your point, Denver had already been involved with Jacques Cousteau He'd been involved with Buckminster Fuller, and he was even writing a song called Spaceship Earth at the time. So it seemed like a natural, uh, and Kraft was really into the idea, but for some reason the deal never happened. I have never been able to figure out why, what happened to it. Uh, instead, the Pavilion's theme would be written by the late, great Bob Moline, who also wrote songs for Canada and the American Adventure Pavilions. And, you know, that's going to be a story for another day, Jeff, but we couldn't let this episode go by without paying tribute to Bob Moline. No, he's just such a part of the fabric of this pavilion. And really, this is, to me, the of all the Bob Moline songs, and, you know, I don't know Bob Moline, but this one just seems to be oozing with his personality. So, yeah. Um, to me, it was the first time I heard of him, it was in reference to this song. And then you learn about all the other stuff he did, but yeah, real singer songwriter vibe. I mean, similar to what you would get from Denver, that same singer yeah. songwriter vibe of the period. Yeah. yeah. A great talent and someone we will definitely be talking about more in the future. Well, that will wrap up our harvest episode. But Michael, I want to talk about so many more things about the land. I mean, I, I have to say one thing, the good turn. What a great name for a restaurant that was. I just couldn't let the episode go without saying that. Oh, absolutely. A, a perfect name. Why would they ever change it? It's so good. I don't know, but they changed it several times, and I don't know why. They had to get that Grilly in there. Oh, the Grilly, which is the most of its era name ever. It's true. That makes Land me think of room. like the uh, kind of teal and pink. That's what Grilly says to me. <laughs> it says to me, this is the first place on Disney property that serves honey mustard dressing. <laughs> yes. We're saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, the good turn. Great name, great vibe, great atmosphere, great menus. Mm -hmm. The menus uh, pop up on the internet every now, every so often, and uh, 
really good looking menus there. You give me a place with a rotating restaurant and a, and a central fountain and a plaza. I can tell you, you know, what decade it was planned in and that I'm going to love being there. And so it was with the land and, and it still is, even though they took the fountain. away. Yeah. 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 Miss that fountain. But yeah, what a great pavilion still is a crowd pleaser. So long may it rain. The cool thing about these Epcot things that we're, these episodes we're doing is that we have so much less to talk about. So we're not exhausting them, Michael. Right. I was thinking about that when, when you were talking a minute ago, that there is so much more about the land that we can talk about. We haven't even gotten into really the making of things like symbiosis or kitchen cabaret. There's so much to talk about. And, you know, even even more about the ride, and I'm sure all sorts of delicious craft recipes. Yes, can never get enough, really, of the craft recipes. A retrospective of the giant sugar cookies that I used to get. Oh gosh, R.I.P. Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk. Yeah, I'd like to talk about what's coming up next. We're at the end of a year. I guess we're, uh, you know, up against the holidays now. Uh, you think we're going to have a Christmas party this year? I don't know. It's getting awfully close, isn't it? Yeah, pretty close. And uh, you've got the kitties to take care of. And yeah, yeah. Santa's got a lot of work to do. Yeah. I mean, maybe if we just turn off the lights, people won't come like Halloween. <laughs> Well, you know, Wacky Neighbor Jay's going to be knocking at the window, like fogging yeah. up the window with his he breath. He didn't even show up last year. So, That's true. He gets, you know, he gets, he has no room to talk. It's kind of his fault. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I think we're not going to do a holiday special this year. We did, did we do two last year? I think we did two last year or the year before that. Yeah. So, so just bank them. We, we banked yeah. one. So go, go back, back and listen to those. And listen to that. those. Uh, Michael, tell us. Tell us what's coming next. Well, we are going to have a little treat for you coming up before the holiday. And it is another interview at another Progress City Town Hall, this time with the director, producer, and writer of many, many Disney promotional films that you probably know very well, Mr. Bob Garner. Uh, this is the man, Jeff, who put Mickey Mouse on the top of Spaceship Earth. Yes, that shot. Uh, a real memorable one. And if you're of a certain generation, you probably know it. You probably know it very well. And uh, we'll hear about that and how he got a call from a certain Disney executive afterwards about that. And things that he did before it. Epcot opened like the preview center film for Epcot and Epcot behind the scenes. Some of, some of our favorite watching material. That's right. Yeah. And what, yeah, I can't wait for people to hear this one. You know, these people who were involved in entertainment always have, it's just a, a different lens that you're used to hearing stories from Imagineers, but, uh, the entertainment people have such an interesting, they're usually busy making the films about the Imagineers, so you don't hear from them, but Absolutely. their stories are great, and yeah. I've always enjoyed them. And yeah. Bob's such a character. I think people are really going to enjoy it. 
Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Michael, if I were interested in, you know, going deeper into the realm of our content, what would I what would I do? Would I go uh to a website? Uh could I click on a link? What 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 do I do to find out more to experience more? My I want to know more. Yes. Uh, um well, I'll tell you what, if you want to know more about the show, if you want to help support the show, and if you want lots of extra content and goodies, you could go to patreon.com slash progresscityusa and join our Patreon. You'd be signing up for early access to episodes. <gasps> You'd be signing up for access to the Disney digital library of goody things that I've scanned in. You'll be getting a packet of swag and stuff. And at a certain level, you'll be joining our monthly live stream where we show lots of rare photos and video and just have a good old time in the chat room. The chat's the best. Yeah. I mean, the chat is a thing. It's the dive bar you wish you could have always gone to without any of the CD characters. I mean, maybe if they're CD, they're lovable. I mean, you know, there's a few I could name, but I won't. <laughs> if Epcot was a city, this would be the dive bar in that city. That's right. And of or course, the, uh, you know, right off the Tama Shanter there in Epcot City. <laughs> totally. And of course, you have access to all of our past live streams as well. So you can spend days and days watching us goof around and That's right. soak all that up. And it's all tax deductible too. So Join us, won't you, at patreon.com slash USA. I really think you should think about it. And I think the people who have thought about it and committed to it deserve our gratitude in this time. It, it has been a bountiful harvest to sustain our our uh, doings here. To keep Absolutely. the Keep the lights on, if you will. To make it not cost money for us to provide you, uh, you know, this this history of cheese and pasteurization <laughs> and mayonnaise so much mayonnaise <laughs> and mostly mayonnaise but yeah if, if you want to continue a conversation with us that's a whole different issue you can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com we could answer you on email or on the air if you uh, if you got a real good one for us you can try to stump us yeah you know you can tweet at us. Michael's at Progress City USA. And I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. You could, you know, you could go rate us. Give us a little Christmas gift on the, uh, the iTunes store or wherever you listen to your podcast. I think Spotify does stars now. I don't know. Um, so, if you would, give us a little rating. But mostly be in touch. And we thank you for listening. If you're still listening at this point, Wow. Congratulations. You've made it to the end. So we're going to sign off. We'll be back soon with Bob Garner. And into the new year we go. 2023 coming soon. So from all of us to all of you, happy holidays. Take care. We'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember... Everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. 
So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour.